Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. This is going to be the last installment into this series on parole. I'm going to be touching on in this episode possibly a few other cases where parole might or might not have worked. But I'm also doing this in order to make or possibly not make the case for parole. As I have already mentioned, I have made my views of parole made quite clear, and I do believe that parole for certain crimes, and if there has been adequate rehabilitation in prison, does actually work. However, for some criminals and some crimes, I think parole is not something that should be offered. I also will touch um, in this episode as well is the support that prisoners do have when they do go on parole. And this is something which I think that they should have more help on as there is a higher risk of suicide in this community after they have been paroled. With the rape and murder of Jill Mayer and the sentencing of Adrian Bailey in June 2014, to life in jail with a minimum of fifty of sorry, thirty-five years led to a great deal of discussion about the operation of Victoria in Australia's criminal justice system. The whole community was outraged at the nature of Bailey's violent crime. It is difficult to think of any other that has led to such public expression of grief and concern. The fact that Bailey had been previously convicted of a serious sex offence and that he was on parole at the time only increased the community's sense of that the criminal justice system had let them down. This is very similar, I think, to Sarah Payne, where the community at large there felt very let down as well. In particular, there has been a considerable debate about the failure of the Adult Parole Board of Victoria to fulfil its responsibility to protect the community from risk of repeat offenders once they are released back into the community. Victims of such crimes clearly have the right to call the board to account in these matters, but some have called for it to be disbanded altogether. Despite what I've said in previous episodes and been quite heated about, it is actually my view that the parole board has a critical role to play in the protection of the wider community. And without it, community safety would be seriously in danger. No such system can eliminate the risk of reoffending. But what the parole system can do is reduce the risk that prisoners will commit further offences when released into the community by providing a supervised transition into the community and by seeking to deal with some of the factors that may lead to reoffending. In the case of Adrian Bailey, it is a clear example of the parole board failing. Already significant legislative changes have been made providing for automatic cancellation of parole for serious violent offenders who have been found guilty of sex or violent offence committed during the period of their parole. 
Further legislation provides for a new offence of breach of parole and gives Victorian police new arrest and detention powers for those suspecting of having breached conditions of their parole. So it doesn't even matter whether they have breached it or not. If they've been suspected of breaching it, then they can have their parole revoked. But the question remains as to whether the parole system with these important changes can contribute to the protection of the community from offenders released from custody. It's been 14 years since I started my studies into forensic psychology and doing in-depth research into criminals and serious crimes. Some criminals will never change, but many do find a new direction in their lives, although not without some limits being placed on their behavior, especially immediately after their release. Many are without housing, have few positive role models, and they often lack the motivation or direction in life. And this is especially for young offenders. Those who do not obtain parole and who are released at the end of their sentence are not subject to any supervision, support and continuing rehabilitation that parole provides. If the prospect of parole is removed from the prisoner, there is less incentive to undertake steps designed to reduce the risk of reoffending. My view is that if an offender does potentially pose a risk, either because of the likelihood of reoffending or because of special needs, that the person should be released under parole supervision rather than retained in prison, and then at a later date be released without such supervision. As annual reports of the Parole Board indicate in Australia, most of those released on parole complete their period successfully. Some breach their parole because they have failed to observe the reporting conditions of their parole order, and in some cases because they have reoffended. Even in the case of a serious breach of parole, it is my belief that you should not argue against the system itself because of these individual cases. I know firsthand how important it is to provide supervision and support to prisoners, especially in the first six to 12 months after their release from prison. I will touch on this a little bit later in the episode um, in regards to those first few months of a prisoner's release. This is a really critical period that can have an impact on whether that person released from prison resettles, is rehabilitated or reoffends. If an offender is refused release on parole, that person will complete the remaining period of his or her maximum imposed sentence and then must be released, but without any form of supervision or control in the community other than that imposed on an ordinary citizen. For a person who's considered potentially dangerous or with special needs, that situation creates a greater degree of threat to the community than if the person was released under the supervision and control of the parole board. The Adult Parole Board of Victoria, and this is just specific in Victoria because this is where most of the research has come out of, but in Australia as a whole, does have a difficult task. And there will be at times serious reoffending by people under parole supervision. This may well 
point to the need to increase the effectiveness of the board, its resources and its work, as is expected to be recommended and present the the review of its functions. Perhaps more attention should be directed at the ineffectiveness of the Australian prison system in bringing about change or in reducing the risk during the whole period of imprisonment rather than the parole system itself. The national prison population in Australia has already increased at three times the rate of the Australian population in the past 20 years, and the post-release reoffending rate increases year by year. The parole system only intervenes nearing the completion of sentence, and its recent public criticism may be shielding the Victorian prison system, which is ongoing and unprecedented expansion at a normal financial cost from any form of public scrutiny or accountability. I'm focusing this one on the Victorian justice system. As I said, there's most of the research has come out of it because of the rape and murder of Jill Mayer, which is a crime that was very present when I did come over to Australia. And it was actually solved by the use of CCTV cameras. And it's very harrowing and very sad. But it is because the awful person who did commit these crimes against her was out on parole. With a majority of one seat, the present Victorian government is maintaining its commitment to a populist law and order agenda that surprisingly brought it to power. But the community needs to guard against reshaping criminal justice policy in such an environment. Despite these circumstances, it is my strong conviction that the resources of the parole board have much to offer in terms of community safety, rather than leaving it to chance or the work of non-government organisations or the general oversight of police. As I mentioned above, I do think that rehabilitation in prison is such a huge influence on whether an offender re-offends or not. It is my personal opinion that offenders who are incarcerated, who find a purpose and a new meaning to their life will actually make the difference and change their behavior. If we release an offender on parole and they are returning to their same life and position as before, or now it could be considered even worse because they're on probation, then it is easier for them to go back to their old ways and habits because they're not offered the support or skills to make a new path for themselves. One thing I took from the success stories from last episode was how all of the parolees found a purpose. They made the decision and choice to do something else in their life. I think that's important to get offenders who are incarcerated to find new skills that are easily transferable to the outside world and into the job market, which can give them a step into life outside prison. I also think that the money that is spent on probation officers could be more wisely used. Not to say that probation officers are not doing a good job. I think they do and do an amazing job. Most have larger caseloads than they should have and are severely overworked. However, I do think there should be more outreach programs for people on parole to help them reintegrate in society to find accommodation, jobs, and financial support. 
But as I mentioned before, I do think that that rehabilitation does need to start in prison. And this is something that the prison system needs to address. I'll never be able to forget one of my lecturers at university telling us that if an offender goes back to the same environment that they offended in previously, there is no difference in their circumstances. There is no opportunity to change. The justice system has just sent them back with more opportunity to reoffend than not. The offender could fall back into the same social circle and will definitely be in the same social environment, and therefore the odds that they will reoffend is higher. If we were to put the parolee into houses with people who housing into with people who can support them, offer them food, help them find a job, give them counselling services to help their reintegration, then they are far more likely to succeed. If a person has an alcohol addiction after becoming sober, you would not send them to go and live in a pub or a bar. So what is the difference? I understand that people would be feeling, well, why should we spend our money on reintegration and doing this but we have to understand that some of these offenders being put on parole are young people they still have their whole lives ahead of them they have only become offending because of the way the environment that they are brought up in most of them and even the older people we can't always I understand we can't always excuse everything, but at the same time, we have to give people the right, the chance to change. Because I personally don't like the term, a leopard never changes its spots. Because people can change, and there is some very dramatic changes that people have seen. When some offenders are released on parole, we have to imagine that the whole of society has changed. If we think about how much technology has advanced in, say, 10 years, imagine going to sleep tonight and waking up in 10 more years. The world would be such a different place. Today, we apply for all our jobs online. And due to the pandemic, most of us work from home using Zoom, Skype, Microsoft Meetings. Even a year ago, half our population wouldn't have known what they are. We conduct most of our lives looking down at our phones. I, for one, dread getting my usage from my iPhone on a Sunday. I use my phone for my work, for my life. Everything comes through on my phone. And these parolees have to learn all those things that we've become accustomed to. But they have to learn it from scratch, not the gradual sort of exposure that we have had. Some have been incarcerated for over 20 years and long gone is the dial-up internet. This is a huge culture shock and if they're not counseled through this and showed how to reintegrate properly into society, they will either likely re-offend to go back into prison or like in Shawshank Redemption, complete suicide, which is high among parolees. After ending on that note, I did 
look into recently a study that was conducted in Sweden. They looked quite deeply into the suicide rates of parolees as they noticed that released prisoners have high suicide rates compared with the general population. I'm going to go through the details of this study as I think it's really interesting to find out why. This is obviously only very specific to Sweden and there is other research out there, but the depth that this particular study went into, I thought was really good. And there's something that we can definitely glean and learn from it. They identified individuals released from prison in Sweden between the 1st of January 2005 through to December 31st, 2009. Released prisoners were followed from the day of release until death, emigration, new incarceration, or December 31st, 2009. And survival analysts were conducted to compare incident rates and psychiatric morbidity with non-convicted population controls matched on gender and year of birth. So this study, they looked at all the literature and based on the current uncertainties in literature, they tried to address three main questions. Number one, are the first 28 days after release the period of higher risk for suicide? Two, what psychiatric risk factors are linked to suicide after release from prison? And three, is there a difference in risk factors for suicide between released prisoners and general population individuals? Most suicides were identified during the first year after release. Naturally, the number of person years at Numbers of person years at risk were also falling for each year of the study period. Nevertheless, with 12 observed suicides, the incident rate for suicide was highest during the first 28 days. It was 408 suicides in the first 28 days out of 100,000. More than half of all released prisoners, 53.6%, had been diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder at some point, with substance use disorder as a predominant category, about 47%. Altogether, about 17.6% had made previous suicide attempts that had become known to healthcare. Compared with the controls of the general population, a previous psychiatric diagnosis was more common among released prisoners. And this was seen across all diagnostic categories with the highest prevalent rates in substance use disorder and personality disorder. Except for psychotic disorder, the prevalence was significantly higher for released female prisoners compared to released males across all the diagnostic categories. A univariate Cox regression analysis of risk factors for suicide amongst released prisoners found a significantly increased risk in prisoners with previous psychiatric history. However, when substance use disorder was excluded from this category, the increase disappeared. 
Other factors related to the increase in suicide risk were previous suicide attempt being released twice during the study period and actually being born in Sweden compared with abroad. Specific diagnostic categories associated with the increased suicide risk were psychotic disorder and substance use disorder. This study found no significant increase of risk by gender, age band, or those with a history of violent crime. So out of this study, 14% of the individuals who were monitored died by suicide. There were three main findings from this study, all which I find very sobering. First, the overall suicide risk among released prisoners was 18 times higher compared to the non-convicted general population. The risk increase was even more pronounced during the first months after release, suggesting that this is particularly the most vulnerable period. Second, the strongest independent risk factors for suicide among released prisoners were the substance use disorder, previous suicide attempt, and being born in Sweden. And the third is the prevalence of risk factors for completed suicide differed between prisoners and the general population controls. The high overall suicide rate supports the idea that transition to life outside prison is a period with substantially increased risk for premature death. Previous research has also suggested increased for relapse in alcohol and drug misuse, unemployment and homelessness. Programs designed to facilitate the transition from prison to the general community differ between countries. And this could partially explain differences in other studies in suicide rates immediately after release. Different ways of pathologists labelling cases as drug overdoses with unknown intent might also explain some differences. So they might not see it as a suicide, just put it as a drug overdose. The generalizability of previous research on suicide rates and risk factors in ex-prisoners has been uncertain because prison systems differ across countries. Previous research has been conducted in nations with large prison populations. However, despite this important difference, suicide rates in this study were similar or slightly higher than in prior research. The most similar suicide rates to this study was an investigation that was done in England and Wales where the prison population is almost twice the amount in Sweden, but they still had the same rates. In this study, there were identified several risk factors for suicide among prisoners following a release. As we've already said, the substance use disorder and psychotic disorder were a strong risk factor 
However, combined in a multivariate Cox regression model, psychotic disorder was borderline significance. It could suggest that psychosis often coexists with substance use disorder in offender populations. The latter interpretation is supported by the fact that the combination of these disorder has a strong association with criminal behavior. Importantly, a previous suicide attempt, an established risk factor for suicide among psychiatric patients and incarcerated prisoners remained a moderately strong independent risk factor in the multivariate model. Previous research to this study in this field had not been able to compare the impact of psychiatric morbidity with the same detail as this study. The novel findings of this study underline the relevance of identifying substance use disorder and prior suicidal behavior when assessing suicide risk in released prisoners. Previous studies suggested that violent crime predicts subsequent suicide amongst released prisoners. However, these results agree with another recent population study of suicide risk among criminal offenders in Denmark. The authors of that study reported that the suicide risk seen among violent offenders was substantially lower when psychiatric and social risks factors were accounted for. As expected, lifetime psychiatric morbidity was common among released prisoners, especially substance use, psychotic and personality disorders. Substance use disorder strongly correlates with criminal behavior and the high prevalence seen in this study is in line with previous studies based on the screening at incarceration. Psychotic disorder is a heterogeneous diagnostic category, including schizophrenia, but also, for instance, acute and psychotic states that may be induced by substance abuse. Since substance abuse is common amongst prisoners, prevalence patterns of psychotic disorder could differ between prisoners and the general population. In addition, since people suffering from severe psychotic disorder, excluding alcohol-induced psychoses, while committing a crime is normally diverted away from prison sentences in Sweden, that group was not really included in that study. The prevalence of personality disorder in the cohort of released prisoners in the study is underestimated since personality disorders are seldomly prime, the primary reason for an inpatient in psychiatric care. Hence, several studies based on structured interviews have shown much higher figures amongst prisoners. Interestingly, a history of substance abuse disorder was more common among released male prisoners who committed suicide than among match population non-prisoner suicides. This suggests that substance use disorder may play a more important role in suicides among released prisoners. Further, released prisoners who commit suicide more often had previous suicide attempts compared to the general population suicide victims. The relatively low prevalence of affective disorder and personality disorder among released prisoners who committed suicide is somewhat surprising. To date, this is actually the largest study on suicide following the release from prison. Further, compared to previous studies, 
the authors were able to delineate the psychiatric morbidity that affects suicide risk and how the suicide risk factor pattern differs from that in the general population. Complete coverage of the study population is another strength. Although the data collected was prospective and preceded the suicide death, registered-based studies rely on collection data from many different clinics, hospitals, and the variety of validity of the diagnosis thus may still vary. As we said before, like a coroner may not say that they have died by suicide, they have had a drug overdose when it might be either or. In summary, this study found that suicide among released prisoners was 18 times more common, with particularly high risk during those first four weeks. Elevated suicide rates in this study underlied the need for selective preventative efforts for this high-risk group. Hence, prison and probation services, mental health care, social services may need to collaborate a bit more to develop evidence-based prevention strategies for this population. Other implications arising from these findings include allocating appropriate resources to facilitate transition to life outside prison, as well as increased clinical monitoring during those first four weeks post-release for ex-prisoners with a history of both previous suicide attempts and substance abuse. In addition, consideration should be given to involving community mental health services before release from prison in those at higher risk. Finally, the risk of suicide after release from prison should be highlighted. National suicide prevention strategies should include recently released prisoners as a high risk group. Quite honestly, this paper was an amazing read. I really just briefly covered this and it has really cemented my beliefs. In answer to the question, which is the title of this episode, yes, I do think that we do have a case for parole. However, what we do in prisons to rehabilitate and to support prisoners before they are paroled, I think needs to change. And how we support parolees after they have been paroled also needs to ramp up and be changed. Because as I mentioned earlier, a prisoner can just go through prison, come out at their end date and they haven't had any rehabilitation and they're not monitored afterwards. So for parole, they are monitored and I think they should be monitored past what their release date is. And I think that we should have those preventative measures in place, like we should have the housing ready for them so they're not going back into the same community. They're in a housing community, which is probably something like a halfway house where people are there and people can monitor them their parole probation officer knows where they are, the parole knows where they are. I think they do have to have those skills which they can develop in prison, like 
one of the gentlemen that I spoke about in the last episode, he learned how to do the braille and then he's gone onto the braille board. He can do all the braille books for all children, which is such a unique thing, but it's put him in an exceptional position to be able to transition back into life. I do think that all that supporting does need to be there. They do need the counsellors to prevent the suicide. They do need the mental health care, especially if there is substance abuse, so you don't want them to go back. As I said earlier, you wouldn't put an alcoholic back in a pub. There is no difference, really, if you're putting someone back where they just came from. They're just starting from scratch again. My sources this week were there is a case for parole by Peter Norton in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 4th of August 2013. Proposed changes to the Victorian Law 23 by Justice Ian Callaghan. And alternatives to parole, probation, supervision, improved safety and justice strategies. This is from 27th of April, 2009, Judith and Green. Suicide after release from prison, a population-based queer court study from Sweden, Haglund et al, 2014. That was in the Clinical Psychiatry Journal, 2014, October 75, 10, pages 1047 to 1053. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. I know it's been a bit of a heavy series. I just wanted to actually expose people to parole because it's a word that we hear so often but sometimes we don't really know what it means or we don't know the backstory of things we only really hear the negative things about parole as I said in this episode I've had 14 years of exposure into the prison system and parole and it's something that unless you are in it you don't really understand sometimes what's going on in the deeper layers of things but I hope this has given you an insight. And if you have any questions, please feel free to email me. So next week, I'm going to be looking at a slightly lighter subject just to break these up a bit. And I'm going to be discussing the myths and legends that surround mirrors. Mirrors are something that have been used um, for many hundreds of years. And obviously, the myths and legends that come around them is very high especially the Bella Lugosi's mirror which is the most popular one which I will touch on as well next week if you have any questions as I said or you want to give me any feedback then please drop me an email at macabreformortals at gmail.com or give me a follow on Instagram macabreformortals I hope you all have a fantastic week and I look forward to speaking to you in March